I invite and request that you join me in performing a ceremony, another ceremony. Uh, I request that each of you say your first name, and then after you say it, you together with everyone say, welcome, and then your first name. So for example, I would say, Reb, and you would say, welcome, Reb. Would you please perform that ceremony? Greg. Welcome, Greg. May Chu. May Chu. Welcome, BC. Welcome, Cebu. Welcome, Adam. Welcome, Stuart. Welcome, Sue. Welcome, Terrence. Welcome, David. Welcome, John. Welcome, John. Welcome, Catherine. Welcome, Deborah. Welcome, Luke. Monica. Monica. Welcome, Mitch. Welcome, Westry. Welcome, Laura. Welcome, Ian. Welcome, Eshwan. Welcome, Kristen. Welcome, Lane. Welcome, Patrick. There's, looks like some people here this morning who were not here yesterday morning, is that right? It might be good for me to do a recapitulation of some things that were brought up yesterday to help the new people uh, join the ongoing uh, teaching, and also to remind the people yesterday in case they forgot. So a basic suggestion here is that uh, I'm offering teachings which are primarily for the sake of uh, what are called bodhisattvas. These are teachings for for beings who wish to realize Buddhahood in order to benefit all beings. Or another way to put it is beings who wish to realize helping beings for the sake of helping beings. Because Buddha, as I proposed yesterday, is basically the way that beings 
are helped. So when we honor Buddha, we're honoring helping all beings in the, in the most full and complete way. So those who wish to realize the actuality of benefiting living beings for the sake of benefiting living beings are bodhisattvas. Those who wish that, those who have this amazing, immense aspiration. Again, I said our bodhisattvas, I take it back. Bodhisattvas have that aspiration. And it's a characteristic of bodhisattvas to have such an aspiration. And by taking care of that aspiration, one, the caring of the aspiration realizes the bodhisattva. So bodhisattvas have the aspiration and care for it. And the way of caring for it is the bodhisattva training methods, the bodhisattva yogic practices, the bodhisattva virtues, the bodhisattva um, way of practicing with this aspiration to bring it to reality, to manifest it. And then another nice idea uh, is that these practices, these bodhisattva training methods, are the cause of entry into reality, entering reality, and they are also the they are the result of entering reality. So by doing these basic practices, which in, which includes all bodhisattva practices. By practicing them, we enter reality, and entering reality, we naturally practice them. Before we enter reality, they may be something kind of unusual for us, something difficult. Even though we think they're really great practices and we can see that they would protect and nourish this aspiration, we still often, people say, these practices seem hard, these yogic practices. So... Some of you have come to see me, and you've told me that you really appreciate these practices, but they're hard. And I, I say over and over, yes, right. We don't say they're easy. But they're, they're the cause of entry into reality. Once we enter reality, they're not so hard anymore because they just naturally flow from truth. So again, I said yesterday that there's a process of wishing to benefit all beings, wishing to join the program, wishing to join the great activity of Buddhas to help beings, and then joining that practice, and through that practice, entering reality, waking up, authentically, and then continuing the practice, and then waking up authentically, and continuing the practice, and waking up authentically, and round and round, to make a Buddha. Uh, sometimes Zen monasteries are called Zen gardens, or Zen forests, but they're also sometimes called houses for making Buddhas. They're Buddha-making houses.
and everybody in the house is in the Buddha-making family. Uh, these, these basic yogic exercises for bodhisattvas are sometimes described as sixfold. That's that's a that's a kind of a conceptual expression for all the bodhisattva practices. They all fall. In, you can all put them all in six categories, and those six categories are the practice of giving, practice of ethical discipline, the practice of patience, the practice of heroic effort, the practice of concentration, and the practice of wisdom. Another version, another version of bodhisattva training is the three pure bodhisattva precepts. The precept of uh, discipline or restraint, the precept of embracing all wholesome activities, and the precept of embracing all living beings, those three. Another way to talk about bodhisattva training. Those three could be placed in the position of the second of the bodhisattva trainings, namely ethical discipline. And when you put those, when you realize that the second one of the three of this, the second one of the six contains those three, you see that that second one contains the six because these three practices contain all bodhisattva practices. Because the second pure precept is the six perfections. Is that clear? The first one is the, is the pure precept of restraint. And it means restraint or disciplining Delusion. The second one is assembling all wholesome activities, which are the six perfections. And the third one is to benefit all beings. So the six, each of the six, and in particular the second of the six, includes the three. And the three include the six. The second of the, of the three is the six. The second of the six is the three. So they mutually include each other. Two different ways to approach Buddha making. I also talked yesterday about the relationship between what we call Zazen in the Zen house in the Zen family. What we call Zazen, I propose to you, is these bodhisattva yogic exercises. It's all of them. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, simple, it's a simple word, Zazen. Sitting meditation includes all of the Buddha-making practices. Some Zen students think that sitting meditation only includes concentration practice. It does include, Zazen of the Zen tradition does include concentration practice. It, it includes that practice, but it includes giving 
etc., up to wisdom also. A basic principle, again, is that we are, uh, we are beings with karmic consciousness. We are beings with, with deluded consciousness, active deluded consciousness, where we see sights and hear sounds in a deluded way. We have a karmic consciousness that experiences our life in a deluded way. And that deluded way of experiencing life makes us prone inexorably to grasping in the, in the midst of living. Because that we, have a we have a deluded mind and a mind that creates delusions or illusions and the one way to talk about it is we have a mind which constructs things in such a way. We have a mind which constructs things in such a way that they seem to be external to the mind. So there's a teaching that the mind arises in such a way that it constructs its own objects and, and it looks like its own objects are separate from itself, even though it's looking at its own constructions. So the minds of, of sentient beings are, are actually looking at the minds of sentient beings all the time. Sentient beings are looking at their own mind. Sentient minds are looking at sentient minds. But sentient minds appear deceptively. They appear as though they were outside themselves. So, you know, mind babies appear to be separate from mind mommies, but they're not. The mind is both mama and baby. But the babies say, mommy, I'm separate from you. That's a delusion, and therefore the mommy can't help but try to grasp the baby. And that grasping causes suffering. We enact this mental, act, this mental nature in daily life of grasping people we know because they look like they're graspable. So the Buddha way is concerned for living beings and their suffering and wants to help living beings become free of the grasping which causes the suffering. But in order to become free of the grasping of our life, or you could even say to become free of the strangulation of our life, we have to become free of the delusion that our life is graspable. Life is not graspable, fortunately or unfortunately. It's not graspable. Life is infinite. It's infinitely extensive and infinitely ungraspable and infinitely wonderful and has infinite possibilities for infinite happiness and compassion and wisdom. And yet living beings, for some reason or other, probably having to do with living beings, are built to make living beings, we ignore, we are ignorant of reality, and we make reality, we, re, we, we reconfigure reality into conceptual 
packages which we can grasp and then we suffer because we're not in accord with reality and we're grasping something that's not meant to be grasped. So that's a normal situation. So the practice of the Bodhisattva, the practice that the Buddha transmits to living beings is to be compassionate to the karmic consciousness. By being compassionate to karmic consciousness, it also means be compassionate to delusion. By being compassionate to karmic consciousness and delusion, we come to enter reality. By By being compassionate to unreality, we enter reality. By being compassionate to the untrue, which is constructed naturally by living beings, Living beings have a nature to constantly conjure up untrue things, untrue things, untrue things. You are not untrue. I am not untrue. But our construction of each other, our story about each other and ourselves is not true. It's just a story. By being compassionate to these stories, by being compassionate to these karmic consciousnesses that are churning up stories moment by moment, we enter into a reality. Someone came and told me yesterday, I think, that he regretted, he regretted his delusion. And in a way, I thought, well, you don't have to regret that you're deluded. You don't have to regret that you're a living being. The thing to regret, a more appropriate place for regret, is regret that you're, when you're not kind to your, to your living being. Regret not doing the practice. The practice is not to practice being something other than a living being. The practice is not to practice being not deluded, because that would be not kind to the deluded beings. The practice is to be kind to delusion. And if you don't practice kindness to delusion, then regret that. That would be good. But the delusion isn't exactly regrettable we don't, put the, we don't encourage regret about delusion. We encourage compassion towards delusion. And then if you don't practice compassion towards delusion, and you want to, you will regret. And that's good. So the great ancestor in India in the 4th and 5th century named Asanga, he taught that the essence of precept The essence of bodhisattva precepts is, number one, to correctly receive a precept, a teaching, a practice, from another. That's number one. So you don't give yourself the precepts. You receive the precepts from another. Ultimately, we receive the precepts from the Buddha. 
and then somebody received the precepts from the Buddha, and then they give them to their students, and their student receives it, and then their, their student receives it. So we, we receive the teachings from another who received the teaching from another, who received the teaching from another. And we receive it correctly means when we receive it, we make a, an effort, hopefully a thorough effort, to be clear about what the precept is. And then once we receive it and are clear about it, or once we're clear about it and receive it, or once we're clear about it and we say, I want to receive it, then we aspire to practice it. So receiving it from another correctly, aspiring to do the practice, those are the first two aspects. Receiving and aspiring, the first two ethic practices of, our first two aspects of the essence of bodhisattva precept practice. The third, the third aspect of the essence of bodhisattva ethics is failure at bodhisattva precept practice. If we already were trained bodhisattvas, we wouldn't have to train as bodhisattvas. If our mind was already trained in such a way as to realize the aspiration, then we would, we would have a Buddha. But we don't yet have a Buddha. In other words, our minds need to be, have not become into complete accord with this aspiration. Our minds have not yet become completely, moment by moment, totally in accord with living for the welfare of all beings. Of not just living for that, but actually living as that. We have not yet have a mind which is exactly the welfare of beings. So we have to train it. So that means when we receive these precepts, we will fail at them sometimes. Somebody said, fail at them all of the, fail at all of them all of the time. And that is possible, I guess, for a moment, that you could fail at all of them all of the, at that time. But uh, there, is, there is a suggestion from another, and it's the same other that gave these precepts, and the suggestion is, you will actually someday stop failing. <laughs> In other words, you will become Buddha. The Lotus Sutra says, you will become Buddha. You will eventually receive these precepts, aspire to practice them, aspire to practice them, and receive them, and after a long period of failing at them, you will stop failing. You will be flat out successful. But that third step of failing goes on for quite a while. So not only do we fail at being compassionate on some occasions, once we aspire to it, and once we aspire, to it and we fail, we feel regret and we feel embarrassment. And we also feel something, you could also use the word shame, but it's not shame about ourselves. It's not shame about our being a sentient being. It's not sh shame that we're deluded. It's not regret and embarrassment and shame that we're deluded. It's regret that we don't do the practice we want to do. I feel ashamed that I wasn't kind. I'm not ashamed about myself. Actually, I think I'm great. because I think I'm great. I think everybody's great. I think everybody's infinite. 
I'm not ashamed of being infinite. I'm not ashamed of being ungraspable with infinite possibilities. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not. I actually am not. I've got to be careful not to be proud of it, actually. <laughs> what I really am, I'm not ashamed of. And you don't have to be ashamed of what you are, because you are inconceivably wonderful. I mean, I don't even know how wonderful you are. I've heard about it, but I don't know. Everybody's an ocean of wonder and possibilities. Everything is. You don't have to be ashamed of that. The thing to be ashamed of, the thing to regret, is not being compassionate and not being wise. But start with not being compassionate. But again, you might not regret it. Some people are sometimes unkind, you may have noticed. And you can hardly see any regret when they're not kind. And that is because they have not sincerely aspired to be kind. But once you sincerely see how good it would be to be kind, how happy you would be to be kind, and you say, I want, that would be great, and I want to be that way, and I really promise to work on that, then when you don't, you feel regret. And that's the third aspect of bodhisattva precepts. So the cause of the third one is the first two. You, the cause of regret when you don't practice the bodhisattva precepts is that you aspired to them and you received them. And the first three are the cause of the fourth one, which is that you actually don't regret anymore because you don't fail anymore. So if you're in the third phase, you may notice that you're somewhat uncomfortable with being regretful and embarrassed. But that's normal bodhisattva discomfort. That's the discomfort of compassion. And you, you can feel uncomfortable about it, but also feel like I have the company of all the great bodhisattvas who are also aspiring to this practice and sometimes in subtle and gross ways slip up. That we're all doing this practice together. So again, I'm not telling you you shouldn't be ashamed of yourself. I'm just saying it's not appropriate to be ashamed of yourself. But go ahead and be ashamed of yourself if you want to, but the self you're being ashamed of is not your true self. But it's okay to be ashamed of not yourself, but of not doing the practice. To be embarrassed and regret may be easier words. Because I think the word shame is sometimes applied to the person rather than the shortcoming in practice. It's a little confusing for people. So like I say, sometimes people come and say that they regret being a human being. That's not... That bodhisattvas do not regret being human beings. They hap they're happy to be human beings because being a human being is a great opportunity to practice. Once again, careful, compassionate care of karmic consciousness is the cause of entry into reality. 
and Zazen in the Zen school, or at least in this Zen school, in this Zen house, Zazen is compassionate care of karmic consciousness, which is the cause of entering reality. And then the compassionate care goes on after entry into reality. Here's a kind of subtle and a little bit difficult to understand point. The Japanese ancestor named Eihei Dogen Daiosho, who was also the person who, who's, he wrote this vow, Eihei Koso Hotsugaman is by Dogen. This is his own vow that he wrote. That ancient master said in the, in the what's called Fukan Zazengi, which is the, which is the, uh, uh, the general admonitions, the general instructions for the ceremony of sitting meditation. In that text, he says, the zazen I speak of, the zazen I teach, is not learning meditation. In other words, it's not just concentration. It is concentration, but not just concentration. It's concentration, Wisdom, patience, enthusiasm, ethical alertness, and generosity. That's the zazen I teach. It includes concentration. And the concentration it includes is a concentration that includes generosity, ethics, patience, and enthusiasm, and wisdom. The zazen I speak of is totally culminated enlightenment. So in that sense, the way I understand him at that point is he's saying he's talking about the zazen which you practice, which is practiced after entry into reality. He knows that in order to do the the zazen practice, after entering into reality, that in order to do that practice, you have to do something like that practice before entering reality. But at that point in the text, he's saying, I'm talking now about a zazen which you can practice after entering into reality. But in other cases, he teaches the zazen that you do before you enter reality. So for example, the zazen you practice before entering reality is the zazen which you do. I do zazen. The zazen you practice before entering reality is a zazen which seems to be other than you. Or it's a zazen which seems to be living with somebody who's other than zazen. So most people think that they're zazen in themselves, most Zen students. Most religious practitioners think there's religious practice and me. This is the, uh, the way we understand practice before entering reality. Once you enter reality, you realize there's no you in addition to the practice. And there's no practice in addition to you. So 
So if there's you, there's the practice. That's all you are, is the practice after you enter reality, or vice versa. There's just a practice. There's no you in addition. There's just a practice. You're, you're kind of like not something in addition. And when you enter reality, you can, you can accept that. I don't have to have me on top of the practice. But a lot of people say, well, well if there's just a practice, what about me? You're totally included in the practice. You're fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Again, uh, I think in the Fukan Zazengi, he kind of shifts back and forth between the practice, which is the cause of entry into reality, and the cause and the practice, which is the effect. Because he says that towards the end of the Fukan Zazengi, he says, the treasure store will open of itself and you can use it at will. In other words, if you practice this ceremony of sitting wholeheartedly, the treasure store will open and you'll be able to use it at will. If you do this practice from a dualistic point of view wholeheartedly, you will enter into realizing the non-duality of yourself in the practice. The treasure store will be open and you can use it at will. So that's the end of the Fukan Zazengi. And at noon service, we're chanting another text of Azazen which describes a samadhi called self-receiving and employing samadhi, jijuyu zammai. That text describes the zazen, which is after entry into a reality. That describes the treasure store opened and being in there, using it at will. So, so what we chanted at noon service yesterday, and maybe we'll chant today, describes the realm of concentration, where all these bodhisattvas practices are cooking, where they're all working in stillness and silence. You're talking about the realm where everything is performing Buddha's work. You're talking about the realm where your practice and my practice and the practice of all living beings and all Buddhas are the same practice and the same enlightenment. Does this say equally sameness of practice and sameness of realization? Is that what it says? Remember? Oh, yeah, you're not so familiar with this, so you haven't memorized it yet. Sorry. Towards the end of it, you'll, you'll see this maybe. It says, uh, yeah, okay, it says each moment of zazen, okay, each moment of zazen which is embracing all bodhisattva practices, each moment of zazen which is the zazen that's practiced in the realm of reality, the zazen he's talking about here is the zazen which is totally culminated in enlightenment, in that zazen, each moment of it is equally wholeness of practice and wholeness of realization. But another translation, 
says each moment of zazen is equally the same practice and the same enlightenment of you and all beings. It's not just the same practice and the same enlightenment as you and all the great bodhisattvas and Zen mistresses and Zen masters and Buddhas. It's not just the same as them. It's the same as you and all enlightened beings and all unenlightened beings. It's the same practice of all beings. That's Zazen. And it is how that same practice is everybody's helping each other. Everybody's illuminating. Everybody's liberating everybody. That's Buddha's practice, which we are totally included in. But if we haven't entered reality, uh, we feel a little uh, left out. Um, so I'm, what I'm offering is to uh, connect and, and integrate the great teachings of Indian Mahayana Bodhisattva path together with uh, the Zen school's sitting meditation practice together with living in New York. <laughs> I now am living in New York. I'm not really living in California, except in the sense that California is part of New York. I'm living in New York. Isn't that amazing? I'm not saying I'm a New Yorker, but I'm living in New York. (laughs) I'm practicing in New York. And I've never been here before. This is, uh, this person is uh, dependent on lots of past persons. And many of those past persons had a name pretty much the same as the one I have. But I've never been here before. This is a new person. And he's older than any of those other people who have the same name as him. But actually, he's a fresh, never seen before old man. And same for you. You've never been here before. But you depend on all the past beings who have your name and are contributing to your life now. So you're living here. We're living here. Fresh and new and older than before. Another thing I mentioned yesterday is that the Mahayana teaching of mind, uh, as taught by the ancestor of Sangha, is that the mind has two aspects. One aspect is called active karmic consciousness, which is what we're mostly aware of. And active karmic consciousness cannot by itself become liberated. And we have another aspect of our mind which is unconscious, and that is called the storehouse consciousness in, uh, in, in Mahayana scriptures like the Samdhi Nirmochana and the Lankavatara. 
those, those, two, those two sutras teach this unconscious mind, which is, the, which is the holder. It's not even, I wouldn't even say it's a holder. It is the holding of all of the results of all past karma. But it's the holding of it without having a holder in addition to the holding. It's just that it's somehow all the past karma is available to keep active consciousness going. And, the, and we don't want to make this consciousness something in addition to, to a consciousness, a consciousness which actually is the results of all past active consciousnesses. And that consciousness, from the point of view of karmic consciousness, is unconscious. And the active consciousness, one of the things it does is it constructs stories about life. And for human beings, the story making is linguistic. It's verbal, word images, word image stories. It's conceptual constructions about life. And it turns out somehow a living being at some point tripped upon being kind. You know, instead of being selfish, it did something kind. It did something generous. It did something carefully. It was patient with pain and didn't strike back violently. Somehow a living being who has this karmic consciousness, which is supported by the results of past karmic consciousnesses. You know, kind of like some mutation occurred and it, it did something unselfish and it somehow the Buddha's teaching got through and touched them and they felt it. But of course, being a sentient being, they didn't just feel it and receive it, they made a story about it. Like, for example, it's good to practice generosity, or something like that, or I'd like to practice generosity. And then finally, it got to the point that where karmic consciousnesses dreamt up the wish to become a Buddha for the welfare of all beings. And then, they heard a teaching that, oh, you, you, oh so you, you want to live a life of benefit of all beings? Well, you got to train yourself. So they heard that. And then they thought, oh, I want to train. And then the training came to them, and they tried to train it. And that's where we are now, is that we've heard about, these these, we've heard about this aspiration, and we've heard about these training methods. And as I said also yesterday, the training methods are not our conceptual construction of them. But in order to start practicing them, we have to render them into the realm where we live, which is the realm of storytelling. So we have stories about six perfections of bodhisattvas. We have stories about three pure precepts of bodhisattvas. And we can use these stories and practice, we have a story of practicing these stories until we enter reality and then, we, then we're doing the practices 
without any story about them. We're just actually doing the practices. There's no way, at that point, in reality, there's no way to be, uh, for us to be separate from the practices anymore, which is fine. And the results of past karma are necessary in order to have present active karmic consciousness. And present active karmic consciousness is always transforming, always has consequence, so the result of past karma is always evolving. So our unconscious is always evolving. Every moment it changes. It changes this moment, it's changing this moment, it's changing this moment. Me saying this is changing it. I'm talking about the teaching of how the mind evolves, how the mind is co-created in response to the world, in response to its own history. The teaching is not in the results of past karma. But the teaching changes the active consciousness, and the way the teaching changes the active consciousness transforms the unconscious and makes the unconscious and the, and, and the active consciousness which it supports, it, tra- it puts it into a process of transformation where the active consciousness, the karmic consciousness, is more and more dreaming and thinking and storytelling about Dharma. So, you, so when you're sleeping, you're dreaming about practicing zazen, and not only you sit, not only you are dreaming of, of practicing zazen, but you're dreaming of practicing zazen as an act of compassion to your fellow practitioners. And when you wake up from a dream like that, you're happy. My God, I was just dreaming. I, not only was I dreaming of sitting zazen, which actually I do when I'm sitting in the zendo too, but I was dreaming that I was sitting zazen for the welfare of others rather than just for myself, my own joyful concentration. This is an example how when, if you think, if you tell the story over and over, I'm practicing concentration for the welfare of beings, the consequence of that is that you start thinking, I'm practicing concentration for the welfare of beings. If you practice concentration as a, as a gift to the Buddhas and all living beings, if, you, if, if karmic consciousness happens like that, and it happens like that because somehow you heard that somebody in the past practiced that way. You heard that Zen people in China and Japan said, the teacher said to the student, please practice meditation for the welfare of all beings. Please do that. Or the student comes to the teacher and says, how do you practice meditation? He says, well, I practice it as a gift to all beings. I practice sitting as a gift to the Buddhas. You might try that. The student says, okay, I will. And they did try it. And then they wrote it down, and and somebody recopied that text over and over, and it got to the 21st century, and I read it, and I told you about it. And your mind heard that and constructed that story, and that transforms your unconscious, which supports you thinking of it again. So this afternoon or tomorrow, you might think, oh, I'm going to sit zazen for the welfare of all beings. I'm going to sit zazen as an act of generosity. 
I'm going to sit zazen as an act of ethics, as an act of patience, as an act of enthusiasm, as an act of concentration, as an act of wisdom. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do all those practices for the welfare of all beings. And you think that because you thought it before. And you thought it before because somebody else thought it before and said it to you. And then when you said it, it transforms your unconscious, which supports it to arise again. Uh, this ancient teacher in the Sangha read the Samdhi Nirmachana Sutra. And he read, he didn't read, I don't think he read the Lankavatara Sutra. I, mean, I shouldn't say I don't think he read it, but he liked the, uh, the, the Samdhi Nirmachana best. So he read that. He heard about this storehouse consciousness. He heard about this unconscious that has to be uh, transformed in order to make a Buddha. He read the sutra which says, the complete transformation, the complete transformation of the consciousness, of a consciousness which is the result of past karma, the complete transformation of this unconscious consciousness is the true body of Buddha. That's what the sutra says. If you completely transform your unconscious, if you completely transform the results of all your past karma, that is the true body of Buddha. And how do you transform it? By using your active consciousness to receive these teachings and try to practice them. You receive these teachings from the, from the Buddhas who are the totally transformed storehouse consciousnesses change them into some image that you can work with, you and you transform the storehouse consciousness, you transform the unconscious, you transform the unconscious, transform the unconscious, and along with the transformation of the unconscious is the building, the creating, the Buddha body. So the Buddha body is growing, and the unconscious is shrinking. And at a certain point, the Buddha body is full grown, the results of past karma are non-functional. Active consciousness no longer occurs. All there is is wisdom. And that wisdom then functions through the active consciousness of all living beings who are not completely transformed. Separate self is gone. Separate consciousness is gone. All there is is wisdom consciousness but it stays related to all the beings who are still in the, in the sentient being, karmic consciousness, unconscious process. Another, and so Asanga read the sutra, and the sutra teaches this, and he did a lot of work to unfold a lot of creative, a lot of artwork. He did a lot of artwork with this sutra. And he, he, he reasoned and he, emoted and he sensed and he intuited lots of implications of this teaching about the storehouse consciousness and the active consciousnesses. So the sutra together with him is a great combination. And one thing I want to say is that in the sutra it says that this storehouse consciousness is closely associated, apprehends the sense capacities of a living being. That these two, that the unconscious and the sense organs 
are living in close intimacy. The, it also says that the storehouse consciousness and the body share, they mutually share, the, 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 the consciousness shares the risks and opportunities or the risks and advantages of a body. And the body shares the risks and advantages, advantages of a storehouse consciousness. And part of the origin of this teaching, dash theory, about the mind is that yogis discovered at some point that the active consciousness depends on the body, but the body does not depend on the active consciousness. Because yogis could go into states with active consciousness was virtually not functioning, but the body didn't die. So they gradually came to see that actually the Buddha was subtly teaching and they were now subtly realizing that there is a consciousness when the active consciousness is no longer functioning. That consciousness is the results of all past karma. The body needs this unconscious. Without this unconscious, the body will die. The unconscious needs the body. Without a body, there's no unconscious. And the conscious, active mind needs the body and the unconscious. The active conscious mind needs a body and needs, and it needs a living body. And a living body needs a living consciousness, which is the unconscious. But the unconscious doesn't need the conscious, and the, un and, and the mind, the body does not need the active consciousness. The mind needs the unconscious. In order for a body to be alive, it has to be united with the results of a, a past active consciousness. Now you could say, well, that sounds like the body does need active consciousness, but it doesn't need active consciousness now. It only needs the results of, of active consciousness, which, it, which are available. So again, active consciousness, our active mind needs a body and it needs an unconscious. But the body doesn't need the active consciousness. You could turn off the active consciousness. Not, you know, could means yogis can turn it off. But they can't turn off the unconscious. Otherwise, there will be death. The body needs the unconscious, and there's no unconscious floating around without the body. So they need each other in the moment, always. And then usually, there's active consciousness, karmic consciousness, which is being supported by the unconscious. But you could temporarily, by yogic practices, turn off the uh, active consciousness. Also, the active consciousness can be turned off by sleepless, I mean dreamless sleep, uh, comas, or other kinds of organic brain disease. In those states, too, you have 
You know, we observe this, right? You have a person lying there. They're sometimes called brain dead. But the storehouse consciousness is there. You can, turn, you can take a person's brain away and they can basically, it's not functioning really at, at, at the level of being able to think of, you know, stories anymore. But there's a consciousness there. And that consciousness is the result of past dreaming, past storytelling. If you take the unconscious away, the body dies. And you can't, you can't take the body away from the unconscious. First you take the unconsciousness away, and then the body dies. However, if you turn off the karmic consciousness, and the results of past karma dash the unconscious mind, living in some kind of relationship with, uh, with the body, and in that situation, this unconsciousness is not like in excruciating pain. The unconsciousness cannot have excruciating pain and cannot have excruciating pleasure. It doesn't have active conscious objects. It is aware, and what it's aware of is the body and the world, a world. And it's aware of the predisposition for conventional designation. So it's that, and that's what makes it support the arising of active consciousness. But for a moment, let's just say we're, we're brain dead, or for something more happy, we're in a state of extremely profound yogic concentration, and, the, and this noisy, acutely suffering, or chronically suffering karmic consciousness is turned off. We don't even have bliss, because you need karmic consciousness for, for bliss, or for a certain kind of bliss. However, this, bird, this, this, this being, now this sentient being who doesn't have a karmic consciousness functioning, is not making any evolution towards enlightenment. Whatever level of understanding you have when you go into such a trance, into such a state of concentration, whatever level you have when you go in, you come out with that same level. You do not evolve positively or negatively during the time when the active consciousness is turned off. Because active consciousness is what causes evolution of the unconscious. So there's no negative or positive evolution during that time. There's no receiving of dharma because the storehouse consciousness cannot directly receive dharma. It cannot reconfigure the dharma message into some way which will, which will transform itself. But the active consciousness does. And when it does, it transforms the unconscious to support more active consciousness, to receive more dharma, and so on. So again, the unconscious doesn't, really, doesn't absolutely need the conscious to be alive, but it does need the conscious to evolve. It is, its being is the results of past karma, and its future evolution will be due to our active karmic states. So it would be appropriate, it seems to me, that if our active karmic consciousness was mostly 
thinking about the teaching. And in particular, thinking about the bodhisattva teaching, which is live a life for the welfare of all beings, that's a good deal. Learn how to focus eventually, uninterruptedly, on the welfare of others. Listen to that teaching. Think of that teaching. Karmically, actively engage that teaching as much as possible. And that will, train, that will, that will change the unconscious, that will tra- that, like, transform the unconscious into a Buddha. It's kind of like you have, a wood, you have a piece of wood and you put it in the flames of Dharma and you make this wonderful smoke which is the Buddha. The smoke isn't the wood, but the smoke or the fragrance, maybe better, or even not even the fragrance, maybe the light. You burn the wood, and the light that comes off the wood grows and grows until there's no more wood, they're just this light. And the way to tr- and the, and the, the fire that turned that burns the wood is the active consciousness that receives the light from previously transformed karmic consciousness. Did you follow that? So that's and you know a New York City 21st century uh, story. As, I was, as I've been saying, in Houston I said, in the naked city, there are eight million stories. There are eight million stories in the naked city. How many of you know about that TV program? The older people. Looks, are you guys over 60? <laughs> so there was a show back in the 50s or sometime like that, around the time of Blackboard of water on the waterfront, and it was called, I think, the, I think the name of the city was, the name of the city, the name of the show was The Naked City. And they started out the show by saying, in the naked city there are eight million stories. This, this is one of them. And then I think at the end they said, in the naked city there are eight million stories. This, is, this has been one of them. And uh, so now we're, we're in the naked city. This is the naked city. There's eight million stories here. And I'm telling one of them, and now I'm telling one of them, and now I'm telling one of them, right? But the brilliant thing about that, about that Dharma teaching at the beginning and end of that show is that New York is actually naked of all those eight million stories. None of those eight million stories are really New York. New York is actually beyond the eight million stories right now that are in this city. But still, even though New York's beyond it, there's eight million sentient beings here who are making stories of New York. Now this show didn't say there are eight million stories in the naked city. And if you practice compassion towards one of these stories, in each moment, you will realize the nakedness of New York you realize how New York is, is naked of anybody's story. In other words, you will enter into the inconceivably wonderful reality of New York 
if you practice kindness and compassion, if you practice bodhisattva training methods towards the stories in New York, you will realize reality while living in New York. It didn't say that exactly in this show, but now I'm saying it. And I'm saying it, my story is I'm saying it in New York. And Zazen is one of the stories in New York. And Zazen is to be kind to all New York stories. To be kind to all your own New York stories and to be kind to everybody else's stories of New York. Then everybody will enter into the reality of New York and then the practices which help us in, enter into the reality of New York. The nakedness of New York, the unadorned, the New York unadorned by stories. Then in that way we'll be able to continue these bodhisattva practices unhindered by our stories of New York. Yeah, so there's a little bit of time left, maybe. You don't know because you don't have a watch, but I there there is there is a little time. If anybody has any response to this story to these, actually, these many stories, many, many stories, right? Yes. Well, um, I'm wondering where um, Zazen fits in with the Dharma teachings in terms of um, transforming the uh, karma consciousness. Again, for me, the word Zazen means all the bodhisattva practices and the bodhisattva practices prior to entering into awakening, the bodhisattva practices transform the unconscious. If you're sitting zazen, you're, as if you're a bodhisattva sitting zazen, you don't like give up your bodhisattva practices. Zazen is the name that you can use for all bodhisattva practices which you're, which you're vowing to practice. The bodhisattva practices, dash zazen, will transform the, your unconscious, will transform the results of all your past karma in such a way that your past karma will allow your active consciousness to say, okay, and enter reality. Then after you enter, you enter into the zazen which is post-reality entrance. And then you continue these bodhisattva practices, dash zazen, in that realm. And then the continued practice of zazen, dash bodhisattva practices, in that realm, will produce new entries into reality, which will bring you into new practice of the Bodhisattva path, dash Zazen, which will bring new entries into reality, which will bring new practices 
of the six perfections, dash zazen. If somebody's practicing zazen and doesn't include these six practices, I would say, fine. I, I want to practice the six practices towards somebody who's not doing the six practices. But still, if they want to know what the zazen of the Buddhas and ancestors is, it has these six practices. It has these three pre- precepts. If they are not ready for these practices, fine. We'll be kind to them and kind to them and kind to them until they're ready to practice these, this zazen with whatever's happening with their karmic consciousness. And being kind to your karmic consciousness is being kind to your unconscious, but you can't see your unconscious. The way you transform your unconscious, the way you transform your history as a karmic being is by being kind to your active state of consciousness, which means be kind to the person you think you're talking to, be kind to the person you think you are. That, for me, that is the zazen of the Buddhas, which is all the bodhisattva practices are included because zazen is enlightenment, and enlightenment includes all these practices. If you have all these practices, you have enlightenment. So there is zazen practice, which leads to entry reality and departing. And the unconscious is transformed before entering reality and after. It's just that the way it's transformed before is getting you ready to enter, and the way it's transformed after is different because you're, there's, there's no, you, you know, you're not, you're not, what do you call it? You're not building any more delusion afterwards. You're doing the practices without thinking, I'm doing them. You're doing the practices without thinking that delusion and enlightenment are separate and so on. You're doing the practice without trying to get anything. Whereas most people, when they start practicing bodhisattva precepts, are still trying to get something out of the practice. And if we practice compassion towards trying to get something, We'll get over that. Okay? One, two, three, four. Yes? You say these six practices are yogic practices. Yes. What do I mean specifically? I mean expand your understanding of yoga to include, have you heard of, you've heard of the Yogachara, right? Yogachara just means the, the, the career of yoga. It just means practicing yoga. But the, yoga, the, the school of Yogacara is a school which Asanga is set out this yoga program for. And the basic yoga practice is giving. It's a yogic practice. It's a way of a body-mind creature transforming the body-mind creature by giving, by ethics, by patience, by enthusiasm, by concentration, by wisdom. These are yoga practices, practices of concentrating on giving, concentrating on ethics, concentrating and concentrating on giving and ethics and patience, you can concentrate on tranquility. And I just want to parenthetically mention and go into more detail later that the concentration of a bodhisattva has focus, but it also has flexibility and openness and relaxation. It's not a tight focus. It's a calm focus. All those practices are yogic practices from the point of view of the bodhisattva, yoga path, yoga chara. Okay? Yes? Um, two things. One, the um, conceptualization of the paramita as a way of 
Right. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So the idea of the act of consciousness, like every time there's a kind of a, a karmic uh, activation, it's a moment to kind of wake up and say, okay, what are the practices I can can I do? Um, and that that I need those kind of moments in order to transform the social consciousness. So my question for you is, um, as a way of kind of confessing or helping with my grasping mind, you often talk about, and I know you talk. And um, when I hear that, uh, what comes up for me, or the grasping that starts to happen, is that there's this kind of, you know, transformative moment, and all of a sudden we're in reality. And I, and I say again, there's a transformative. There's, there's this moment, right, and we enter into reality. Yes. And then once we enter reality, you know, the sense of of, 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 of non-separation, uh, we we kind of it's almost like we stay there, you know, and I. And I think what happens for me is, or my question is, are there, is there, is there a process where you enter into reality and then step back into delusion, enter into reality, back and forth, more and more entering into reality in a, in a, in a wider, larger, more ongoing way? And then is there something else that you're speaking about where there's something uprooted and they never leave reality again? <laughs> And so, you know, I've, I've, ta I've heard your mind talk about... Could you, could you start... Because you, you said a lot there. You, someday you may ask the rest of the question, but <laughs> what you said is really important. So sometimes, actually, it's described that when you're practicing these perfections in a zendo, on the street, in the kitchen, that's like the ascending process. You're practicing... You're practicing giving or... Uh, you know, careful action in the kitchen, patience in the kitchen. You're doing these practices. You're developing concentration in the kitchen. You're doing the bodhisattva practices while working in the kitchen. However, there's still, you st it still looks like people are separate from you or the food's separate from you. You're still in the realm of, you're not in the realm of reality. You don't understand it yet. But you're still doing these practices. This is called the ascending process. You're ascending through karmic consciousness, getting ready to enter reality. When you enter reality, uh, after that, it's called the descending. So now you're going to integrate the reality which you've ascended to with karmic consciousness. So you use karmic consciousness to understand and become free of it, and enter or understand it to the point where it will let you enter reality. Then after entering reality, you bring the reality into karmic consciousness. You just bring the reality down into conceptual cognitions again. And there's another point which you said, which a lot of people run into, is when you enter reality, the new thing is unity. You heard about it before, but now you actually like, Enter it. You enter into non-separation. And a lot of people are so shocked and so happy 
with the beauty of non-separation that they hang out there, there for a little while. That's why it's very important to have bodhisattva vow when you go in and bodhisattva teachings when you go in because otherwise, I think you said something like, did you say stay there? What did you say? Oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's right. You might think that this non-separation is permanent because if there's no separation, how can... Usually separation, you can see that would maybe go with impermanence. Actually, non-separation goes very nicely with impermanence, but because non-separation means causally interdependent. But anyway, when when people first have a taste of unity, they sometimes forget about duality. But the correct understanding of illusion, or the correct understanding of the teaching that all this is conscious construction, Sangha says, what's it like when you understand this? Well, it's unity. It's non-separation. And it's duality. And it's multiplicity. But a lot of people who are quite successful in their meditation get to a point where they taste the unity, which is great, but they also need the teaching that the correct understanding doesn't just have unity, it still has duality. The subject-object structure is not destroyed by the realization of oneness. And also multiplicity. So not only do you have duality, but you have a great multiplicity of objects of, of dualistic awareness. So the structure of the world is not destroyed, it is not even touched by the realization. So the, and, and you're going you're to test the integration, you're going to test the understanding of reality by seeing how unity can be brought together with a, the appearance of subject-object and the multiplicity of objects and subjects. And then as you, that's, and, so the, and how, how do you do that? By practicing the six perfections, by welcoming any appearance of duality by welcoming the appearance of non-duality, by welcoming the appearance of non-separation. In other words, don't hold on to, don't, don't be possessive of this great insight. Great insight? Can I have it? Uh, uh, would you please give me the great insight? So that's what, that's what your bodhisattva friends are going to do if you have this great insight. You enter reality, You've got your reality now. Oh, how wonderful. Finally, relief from grasping because I don't believe anymore there's something to grasp. And then your friends come and say, would you please give that to me? Okay, yeah, yeah, sure, here, take it. And also, be careful of it. And then you go on to ethics. Be careful of it. This wonderful reality of non-duality, this wonderful non-separation, and all the wonderful relief that comes with it, be careful of it. Practice ethics with it. Don't be possessive of it. Don't look down on people who don't have it. And so on. And then also be patient. Be patient with what? Be patient with a reality that you have to, that's so dear that you, have, that you can't even have it. And so on. And, and then concentrate on it. 
but also keep concentrating on what else? The main concentration is concentration on the welfare of others. So you keep concentrating on the welfare of others who you now realize are not separate. But you don't say, well, just non-separation, there's nobody there. You still keep thinking about all the people who aren't there. You're totally devoted to these people who you, know, you have dreams about, and so on. And then, there's, and then there's another entry in reality. So another big jolt of non-duality, of oneness. But where's the duality? Oh, there it is. And where's the multiplicity? Oh, there it is. So round and round you go, deepening, deepening the realization, but also deepening the transformation of the consequences of past moments where we thought we were separate. So we're both deepening the realization of truth is the same as deepening the transformation. Ascending, descending. But actually, after, descend, after you ascend into reality and descend, you don't actually go back into unreality anymore. You just keep welcoming with the bodhisattva all the appearances of non-reality, which are given to you as gifts to practice, these, to practice generosity and patience with. So it's kind of like you just spiral deeper and deeper into transformation. Yes. Yeah. My question was a similar to uh, the historical follow-up. You had mentioned uh, yesterday that in certain that in, uh, other traditions of Buddhism, uh, tradition was to attain enlightenment and then stop. Some, you, you know, you, you particularly here, Dogen talking about there's he heard about people in China and Japan who thought, once you enter reality, you don't have to practice sitting anymore. The question is, just from your either historical or from direct experience, but what's, what's your experience with those who have you know, practiced for a long time and taken it very seriously and then just went cold? Do they, do they regress into, you know, into their, their old karmic patterns? What's, how, did that, how has that played out in Your question is about somebody who practices for a considerable amount of time, and then what? Stop. Stops practicing? Yeah. What happens to them? Well, they're probably a little more miserable than people who aren't practicing, which is good, because they know why, they kind of know why they're more, sort of more miserable, because they're not doing what they know would be good. So I think, yeah. One of the advantages of practicing is that when you stop, you, you're not so comfortable with it. Before you start, you may think, you may not know what your problem is. Your problem is you're not practicing. So that's, I guess one of the advantages of practicing is you're a little bit more aware of what it is that your shortcoming is. You still, anybody who's not practicing is miserable. But people who have learned about practice um, and aren't doing it, they kind of, they, the, the virtue of their practice is that they kind of know what it is that they're not doing that would be helpful. But sometimes, but they still suffer greatly when they don't practice, just like anybody who doesn't practice. Anybody who's not devoted to the welfare of others is suffering. And if you've heard about how good it is and tried it and then given up, you feel a special, a different kind of, a different kind of, pain than you felt before you practiced. Is that okay? You have more questions? Is that enough for now?
Okay, Deborah. Um, I work with a lot of patients who, I mean, people who've had strokes and brain injuries where their active consciousnesses try to change, I guess. Um, so I struggle in how to be helpful. I mean, I can be as present with them as possible, compassionate as possible. But I guess I would like a deeper understanding of what's happening in them in life with the teachings. Yeah. Well, actually, it, it, it is kind of sad that if um, if some is that, is that if unless some unless there could be some way for for your offering of practice for them to, on some level to register it consciously, it's hard for the teaching to be transforming their past. At that time, the main way that you tr- that we transform our past karma is by current karma. And if a being is put in a position where they have trouble doing current karma, where they don't have the facilities to be, have a deluded mind, it's harder for them to to to, be, to receive teachings. However, in this tradition, it's like they're going to get another chance pretty soon. Their, their, their past karma, their unconscious, is going to separate from their body, and, and, it's, and that past karma is going to connect to another body and give rise to uh, um, a, an active consciousness, which will, depending on their past karma, will be more or less ready to receive more teachings. But when, when someone is in deep sleep, for example, dreamless sleep, it is hard to, it is hard to give them teachings. And we have to just be patient with that. Buddhas are sending dharma all the time, but they're also patient that people are sort of, kind of, what do you call it, out of sync with the gift. They're either distracted, or they're in a coma, or they're in deep sleep, or they're in some sense. The Buddha cannot teach yogis. My understanding is the Buddha cannot teach these yogis when they're in the deep trance. They have to come out into normal situations where, where they can see the, see the you know, illusion of the Buddha, hear the sounds, and so on. It's through active karmic consciousness that we transform our unconscious. So when a person's in certain states of concentration, sleep, or illness, at that time it, we, 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 we can help them by developing our practice so that if the opportunity arises that they're receptive, active consciousness arises again, at that point we will be part of the support team which will give them teachings at that time. But sometimes people are not ready to listen. And the Buddha is right there, but they're not hearing it. Does that mean something, if this happens to someone, something about their karmic past has caused them to not fully listen in this lifetime? Right. That's right. That's right. Some people, well, put it positively, some people, because of their past karma, their past karma is supporting active karmic states which miraculously are open to the teaching or open to teaching. That's the, that's the good news. The sad news is some people, their past karma is such that they, that you can, you know, that they cannot see that people are being kind to them. 
They can't see it. And that's, that's very, very, very painful to see, but it does seem to be the case. And like a story I told yesterday, which I'll just allude to, is this Asanga, the guy who's given this teaching, he wanted to meet the future Buddha. And he spent 12 years trying to get a meeting, get an appointment <laughs> with the future Buddha. And he practiced compassion for 12 years. And finally, his compassion got to a point where the future Buddha appeared to him. And so most of the people, I mean, to, to see somebody that's kind, a lot of people can do that. But not too many people can have a direct audience with the future Buddha. But he did. But he had to really work hard to get that. So we understand anyway, I understand, that one day this person can hear me, the next day they can't, the next day they can. One day this person is like miraculously open to receive teachings, the next day they're distracted. And, you know, they're thinking of all kinds of things which make it impossible for them to, at that moment to hear the teachings. And the stories of Shakyamuni Buddha, he meets people, they won't listen to him. The next day they will. Or like, you know, he met some pretty tough characters. He met mass murderers, and they wouldn't listen to him, and then they did. So there's so many stories about bodhisattvas seeing opportunity to teach the teaching and also seeing opportunities where the person's not ready. But you keep working on yourself so that when the person is ready, like for example, <laughs> I keep exercising so that I can lift up grandchildren when they want it. But they don't always want it. A lot of times, they aren't, a lot of times grandchildren are not the least bit interested in me. You know? Or they're in other cities so they can't see me. I'm loving them at a distance, but they don't know that. They've got other things that they're interested in. Like my, this little girl who's just been born, you know, three months old, she doesn't know that I love her and I'm available to take care of her. But I am. If she wants my help, I'll give it. If, you know, and I'm kind of, I feel a lot of support to give support to her. People want me to do that so I can do it. But she doesn't even know about me right now. I'm living in New York. She's living in L.A., you know. She hasn't, I don't think she has the slightest idea of me. And her big brother, uh, you know, he knows that I'm totally devoted to him. As he says, with granddaddy, I can do no wrong. He knows I'm his servant, I'm his slave. <laughs> but he's not interested. So I just keep working on myself, you know, keep my muscles functioning, so in case he ever does need anything, I'm there. So sometimes you're, you're with somebody and they're, you know, they don't seem to even know you're there. But you take care of yourself. So if by chance they open their eyes, you're going to be there and say, hi, you know, I'm here. And they say, oh, thank you. <laughs> so you can make, you can make, you got to take care of yourself. So when it's your turn, when, you're, when the call comes, you're ready. But sometimes people don't, there's nobody around who needs you for a while. But don't stop practicing because suddenly a whole bunch of people may come and say, please help. You say, I've been waiting for this, thanks. Here, here I am. Like that. So you, it's not, 
you're not wasting your time to do these practices, even though some people seem to be, think that something else is more interesting than receiving these practices. You don't have to, yeah. Some people sometimes do not want your compassion. They want somebody else's whatever, you know. But then sometimes they, they realize, oh, that's stupid. And they say, where's that lady that was offering me that boring compassion yesterday? <laughs> okay, so keep working on yourself so you're ready when people need you. Don't start working on yourself when they, when they need you. Don't start then. Be, be sort of doing it right, right, right along so whenever they need it, you're, you're available. And remember, that's what you're doing, is you're making yourself into a yogi whose, whose yogic practice is concentrating on the welfare of all beings. But sometimes they don't want, any, they don't want you. I used to watch Suzuki Roshi walk around, you know, and I knew that he loved certain students. You know, I knew he did because he told me. And they didn't even know it. You know, and I said, how can they pass up on his, you know? Like one of my friends, you know, he, she just loved him and he like left Zen Center. How could you leave? Don't you know? This teacher loves you. Yes. So um, the Dharma is dependent on karma. Right. And so the Dharma is dependent on delusions. The Dharma depends on delusions. The Dharma is just for delusion. Yeah, the specific delusion that all beings have is that all beings uh, imagine that things exist independently. All living beings do that. You know, even it's in, even down to the level of cells that that's going on. It seems. Hmm. That's the fundamental one. It's the one one way to put it is we imagine separation. Like once, you know, like cells, they imagine they're separate from other cells, unless the other cells have the same identity that they do, and they have ways of ch identity checking, <laughs> right? And then identity theft causes cancer, you know? So that this identity thing is going on at the cellular level. Some, some cells just say, well, they're, they're in our group, you know? Like ants in a colony, they have the same DNA, so they're kind of cooperative, but they're not very nice to ants who have different DNA. So ants can tell, ants have an identity. They think they're separate from ants in other colonies. Cells in certain areas think they're in the same self, so they, and they think they're separate from other cells. They have ways, and the way that they tell which cells are the same, belong in their group, is called the self of the cell. Biologists use that term for how the cells identify who's, you know, who is in sort of the same cellular uh, uh, social welfare program. So it's, 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 it's very deeply in our biological nature is to imagine separation. That's one way to put it, as a basic delusion. The other way to say it is we imagine that we exist independently, you know, on our own, separate from our environment, for example. That we have substantial existence rather than an interdependent existence. So that, in other words, we think we're substantial, so, and rather than insubstantial. We are actually insubstantial because we depend on other things. 
So we, imagining substantiality is similar to imagining substantial separation. And all living beings have that, and therefore the Buddha's Dharma is to help those living beings. It's primarily to help those living beings become free of that delusion. Because once you have the delusion, then you grasp and reject. So the cells grasp you know, what goes with themselves and reject what doesn't. And that causes suffering rather than harmony and peace. Yes. So first there's, first there's the, the ignorance, the, the, the misconception of, of the situation, that we think the world's split into two. Like I, often, I sometimes draw on a blackboard a circle with a little bump on the top. A lot of people think there's the universe plus something. And most people think the something that's in addition to the universe is themselves. Funny, huh? There's a universe plus me. But we don't think there's a universe plus other people. So that, that misconception, then because of that, leads to grasping. And grasping leads to pain. And then, and then we think, got to do something about it. So the actions we do based on this delusion are called karma. Karma is not the same as um, the affliction of ignorance. It's the actions we take. It's the intentions. It's the mind constructions that we take in response to the mind construction of ignorance. So ignorance is constructed. And karma is a constructed activity in relationship to pain and suffering and grasping, which then leads, the consequences, it leads to another construction of delusion, which leads to more karma, which leads to an unconscious which supports more karmic consciousness. But again, the good news is that somehow some dharma messages coming in, which is making these karmic consciousnesses aware of their, of their delusions. And once they start receiving this and receiving practices to do with the situation, the transformation to enlightenment starts. That transforms the storehouse consciousness, which supports more thoughts of practicing, the, for example, these bodhisattva trainings. And when we think of that, just thinking that we'd like to transforms our unconscious, which supports us to think that we'd like to again. And then sometimes not just think we'd like to, but actually, I'm going to try it now. And that transforms the support of our active consciousness. So over time, we notice we're practicing more and more and more. And a lot of people say to me, you know, they come to the Zen Center and they say, some of these people have been practicing here a really long time and they're still like that. <laughs> and I said, you should have seen them before. <laughs> I'm not the least bit discouraged myself because I've seen people for many years and I know that they're not completely enlightened yet, but I also know 
they've made great progress. You can make great progress and still have quite a ways to go. <laughs> yes. Tell me your name again. Uh, Yashman. Yashman. Good. <laughs> Never stop. What I struggle with, and I'm wondering if there are any good stories, like the story of the dog, is being kind towards the unkind. Being kind towards what? The unkind. Being kind towards the unkind, yes. Yes? And I, I don't know how to negotiate that. Um, I don't know if, if somebody, <coughs> somebody wants you to join them in an unkind act, what's the kind thing to do? Well, I can't, I can't say exactly what the unkind thing is. But uh, if, uh, if somebody says, I'm, I'm thinking of going and do something unkind to someone, I might say, I might say, can I come along? <laughs> you know? Because I don't want the, with, you know, if they go with, um, if I say I'm not going with you, uh, then who's going to be with them when they're about to do it? You know? So I might go with them, and as they're about to do that, I say, could I ask a question? You know? And they say, what do you mean? I just wanted to ask a question before you do this unkind thing. <laughs> say, okay, what's the question? Well, do you think it would really, do you think it would be beneficial? You think this is really a good idea? There's quite a few stories of, you know, of one person wanting to do an unkind thing and somebody else, like his brother, going along with them who doesn't really, not sure it's a good thing to do. Who keeps asking him questions as they go. And maybe actually the brother really thinks it's a bad idea, but he loves his brother and he wants to help his brother and he asks them questions as they go. And sometimes, <laughs> The brother who wants to do this unkind thing by being asked by the other brother or sister, kind of like sees, yeah, this actually wouldn't be helpful, would it? But your, your first feeling is, this is my brother who looks like he's going to do something which I don't think is going to be helpful. But I'm not just going to walk away from him. I'm devoted to this person who seems to be really confused. Again, like my grandson, he sometimes has these various projects he wants to go on, which he thinks are going to be a lot of fun, but I don't tell him that they're not going to be fun. Matter of fact, I don't tell him that by the time he starts doing it, he will already have forgotten how fun they're going to be and be ready to move on to something else. I don't tell him that. I just go with him. So you might generously go with someone who's doing something uh, which looks like not a very good idea, so you can keep questioning them as, as they go. And maybe, maybe protect them from doing this. You want to protect your friend, and everybody's your friend. Bodhisattva, everybody's their friend. So if you see them about to do something cruel, like the Buddha saw somebody about to kill someone, and he moved over towards the person to get between the person and who the person was going to kill. And then he 
talk to this guy and try to make friends with this guy, and the guy would not listen to him, would not listen to him, would not listen to him. But he kept trying to make friends with him so that this guy wouldn't do this violent thing. And then finally the guy just tried to, do, to kill the Buddha. And then the Buddha just kind of walked away. And the guy ran after him and couldn't catch him. And the Buddha said, and the guy said, how come I can't catch you? I'm running and you're walking. Buddha said, you can't catch me because I stopped. And the guy snapped out of his insanity. So this is what I aspire to, is to be able to meet violent people and be a great martial artist, like the Buddha. Not to beat them up, but to show them how cool nonviolence is, how beautiful it is. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.